Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. And now in the wings where artists talk about their work and their journey towards performance. Tonight, director Jessica Drumgool and actors Claire Dunn and Angeline Ball talk about working on Arthur Sheridan's play Mixed Future, which was runner-up at the 2022 PJ O'Connor Awards. My name is Claire Dunn. My name is Angeline Ball. My name is Jessica Drumgall and I'm directing Mixed Future, a play for radio by Arthur Sheridan. I'm playing the character of Monica, who would be the mother of Pauline and the grandmother of Emma, the mother-in-law of Tony. I play Pauline in Mixed Future. Pauline is the middle generation in the play and she tells the story about her mother and the rest of her life playing out with Tony and then her daughter Emma. The play is four monologues and the brilliant cast who deliver them are Claire Dunn, Angeline Ball, Stephen Jones and Lauren Larkin and they're one better than the other. Well, you know, I am a huge O'Casey fan. Having my family come from the inner city, uh, my dad was originally from the Liberties and my mum was from Hutton's Place, down near where Summer Hill used to be. And before they were all moved up to Cabra, which was to stop the spread of TB and all that, we know all about this. But I love the old O'Casey kind of tenement stories because I love the language being that sing-song language that is dying, I feel. So that kind of very inner city accent is dying. And when I read it, I really got a sense, especially with Monica, because she's the older and the way that Arthur so beautifully wrote it. You know, as I say, they might be given out to you, but they're saying it in such a melodic way. It doesn't really sting as much. With this play, I really feel like there's an instinctive storyteller at the heart of it. And when I first read it, I couldn't believe how easily it flowed. And it felt like the kind of thing where you're literally telling stories to your friends or like in a group setting, just at a small like session or something. It just felt so natural and very personal. And at some points it's like you're inhabiting the characters, but at some points it's more that you're quoting and it's like a a sense of memory. And I just really enjoyed that. I'd already read it because it was one of the winning plays in the PJ O'Connor Awards last year, which I was really, really honoured to be a judge on. And I heard it already when I read it, which is very important if something's going to win a a radio play competition or be runner up. And uh, what I heard was a group of stories and a group of stories with such different energies from people who weren't listening to themselves and weren't presenting particularly well. And so really what I was looking for when we were casting was people who sounded very natural and could simply be present in the moment and not uh, never wink at the audience never share anything with the audience simply uh, speak and that's an amazing skill and quite a rare one so that that already kind of eliminated down to a very few and then what I love is unusual and odd voices because it's radio and it's one of the things that grips you I was singing from the time I could speak 
and I was always one of these kids that was forever moving everywhere. So my mother had to bring me somewhere. Everybody heard about Billy Barry's, so I had to go, of course. And I always say that it was one of the best things from my childhood. I mean, I've got two children now and I wished that they would have had that drive to go and do something like that because it's not just about performing. It is about performing, but you get the kind of tools of life you know you have to in, you interact with other people you make great friends great sleepovers and it's the first time you learn to be disappointed if you don't get something so it was a kind of a continuation of that and I have tried other jobs but nothing really stuck as much as singing first and then acting and I love being around creative people and entertainers they drive you crazy sometimes but you know a lot of it's fun good stories I started acting just because my mum asked me what I'd like doing when I was 12 and I told her I like making people laugh in the back of the class. So she sent me to uh, a drama class when I was 12. My dad was a theatre director and a television producer and director, Patrick Drumgall. And my mother was uh, an actress, Jennifer Davids, before she got married and had children because those were the 50s. So in a way, it never didn't occur to me to go into the profession in some way but I didn't really start directing until after I'd had a child and I think it was because I'd always wanted to but when you have a child there's no reason to leave the house except to do something you want to do more than hang out with the best person in the world and so I just kind of fell into directing after that and found that a kind of very gentle mothering nurturing direction suited the kind of work I liked and that's the the way I approach the work so yeah. I'm from the south side of Dublin uh, I grew up mostly in Ballantyre I went to St. Tractors and then uh, BCS and then moved to Our Ladies Grove in Goatstown and then in terms of the drama classes I started out with Maeve Widger in Churchtown who's, who's sadly gone now she was an absolute legend and uh, she taught me the best thing that I ever learned for professionalism, which was 95% of the job is turning up on time. <laughs> my first panto, now showing my age, was with um, Danny Cummins in the Olympia. I probably was one of his last, <laughs> I have to say that. <laughs> but I remember being tiny on stage and then coming on. And you know what I even think about back then was there were so many people in the cast there would have been about, say, 12 dancers. Then you have all the kids. And, you, and then slowly and surely it kind of condensed a lot. This isn't my first radio gig, but I wouldn't say that I'm an expert radio drama actress. So it's actually been so nice to be welcomed for the first time to RTE Radio. I'm really like, it's really, really nice. I come originally from Somerset, although you wouldn't hear it in my voice because if you grow up in Somerset, half the population drop their accent at 13 because they want to leave and since then from London we were always told we were Irish it's decreasingly true the more I look into it but uh, I've got the good Irish surname so I feel massive affinity and it's coming from London means coming from absolutely everywhere and finding your tribe then I did a lot with like Adele King Twink and then I started to progress when Sunday night at the Gaiety was my first foray into singing. Year after that, I got a gig singing on Sunday night at the Olympia with Brendan Grace that ran for about 
would have been about three years. Or From that, I went on to working with RTE and the orchestra with Music of the Night and Make Mine Music. And then, of course, the show that I did with Finbar, right? Uh, I went to study in Cardiff because I was actually struggling with the decision. I had an option for Cardiff or an option for Dublin. And then Catherine Byrne, the wonderful actress, very famous for working with Brian Friel. And then I used to see her a lot working in the Abbey and in some great plays by Paul Mercier. She came into the health food shop and I remember going, oh my God, that's Catherine Byrne. And she came in with a shopping trolley and then she she was leaving. And I was doing that thing where you're like, okay, do it. Do I just ask her? Do I just, I chased her down the hall, like the hall of the main shopping mall. And I stood in front of her trolley. I said, sorry, I have to ask you something. Anyway, I told her what was going on. That I had a bit of a dilemma with my choice of where to go. And I remember distinctly her just going, eh, I'd go away. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And she's like, yeah, you have to like grow up a bit, become your independent self, but also see a bit of the world and learn from other cultures. And that was it. I kind of had, I suppose, made the decision myself in my heart, but that really pushed pushed me over the line. The first thing I directed was about a mother and baby home. So I almost came as an expert in mother and baby. It was a play called Never Had It So Good, which we brought over to the Dublin Theatre Festival. And we were so excited because it was sold out in advance. It was just on the fringe of the festival. And of course it was sold out because there was a self-administered termination in it. And half the audience had bought tickets in order to give us a standing ovation and the other half in order to leave immediately and it was such a shame because we actually had friends we wanted to see the play (laughs) but you learn you learn that nothing's not political it was 1990 when we made the commitments so when the commitments landed on me it was like a bolt out of the blue really I'd done a little bit before. Thank you to Adele King again, Twink, because I was on the pantomime with her and she told the Hubbards, who were great friends of hers, about this little blonde one. And um, they'd brought me in for a few things and I'd done a couple of ads already on the telly. So I was one of the lucky ones to not have to go and queue around the mansion house. And I went and met Ros and John and when I went in for the interview, they said to each other, she'd make a great Imelda. And I didn't have a clue what they were on about. And I looked at them kind of, you know, whatever. And they said, go, 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 buy the book, buy the book. And that was it. And I think when I read the book, I didn't understand artistic license at that point. I was reading that Imelda had like black hair, blue eyes, I blonde hair, green eyes. I was saying, how are they going to do that? You know, stupidly. But I definitely wanted that part. And it was a long process because you can imagine they saw Ireland and her mother and the amount of times people have come up to me and said, you know, I auditioned for that role or I was in the back of that, that you know, the, the one you did at the waterfront or in the in the ice rink out in Dunleary. I was in the, the scene. There's a lot of people. And I did say on one of the six o'clock shows once somebody was able to tell me that her horse's mother was in the commitments. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, that'd be the one that they couldn't get into the lift, you know. Cardiff was amazing. It was absolutely brilliant. It's a great little... Uh, UK city that you can afford to live in as a student but the college itself was phenomenal if it wasn't for that college I don't know if I ever would have discovered that I could write because they made you collaborate and work with all the other people in the college courses and it really gave you a sense of being able to create anything from any sort of starting point to any idea 
Well, I did a couple of plays by a writer called Karen Hope, which were runaway successes. And on the back of that, an incredibly famous writer in Britain called Sarah Daniels uh, came to see one of them and invited me to direct her next play at the Royal Court. So I had a bit of a stellar uh, ascendance, which was largely due to the kindness of women. And then I uh, started doing work with Payne's Plough Theatre Company, working with Sarah Kane and Mark Ravenhill, who were both inspirational writers and also colleagues. And through that, I, I did a lot of touring work with Payne's Plough, plays like Gary Owen's play, Mad Gary's Crazy Disco, and and then these collections of short plays. And really, I started to work in the regions more and more. And at that point, it became unsustainable with a young child. And so I very gratefully allowed myself to be headhunted by the BBC. Yeah, the whirlwind was was really quite kind of shocking in a way and you're not prepared for it like people these days you know Love Island they know what they're going into they know what, what's waiting for them when they come out they know what deals they have they know they want to lose their anonymity but for us I think it was just really like the magic carpet had been pulled from under us there's safety in numbers I always say there was 12 of us then it suddenly it was like 10 little Indians gone and that was tricky to deal with, I have to say. There was a time, and I, you know, I don't really like admitting this, but I wasn't proud of it or to be in it. I just kind of wanted it to go away quietly because I couldn't deal with people looking at me and knowing who I was and me not knowing who they were. Dublin's a small place. Ireland's a small country. Even sometimes when I'm abroad, I was in Belgium and somebody recognised me over there. So, it, it you know... Which is lovely now. I can deal with them. I'm older. But when you're young, you know, we were all pretty green, let's face it. Basically, we used to have to do this thing called an EYA, an end-of-year assessment. And that meant that you had to write and perform something on stage for 20 minutes. And the idea was then that you worked with the stage management course, the theatre design course, and the... I think there might have been a separate section that was all to do with light and sound. So essentially we were all being forced to sort of become a form of theatre company together and it was very fast produced but it was absolutely thrilling. It was the making of me. Joined the BBC to run the Writers' Room which was completely uh, kind of literary management on a turbo scale and that kind of burned me out after a couple of years and I discovered radio while I was there. I don't think I've been particularly an audio person before that but oh my god radio has just appealed to me so much the writers you get to work with and the actors you get to work with the caliber of them the fact that you get to be an edit instead of simply sitting quietly on press night and allowing your theater play to find its own way i always preferred the sort of slightly football manager notion of directing where you could sort of stay involved and as i made more and more radio work. I worked on Westway, the World Service Soap, and I launched a soap in Pakistan for the Urdu service called Pyaka Passport. And uh, as I worked on them, I began to realize that actually my real skill was in show running, big series. And that culminated in Homefront, which was this 590 episode series that we did to cover the centenary anniversaries of the 
First World War when I was lucky enough to invite Sarah Daniels back in to work on that. So it all came full circle. Alan Parker was... He was a wonderfully, very, very unassuming man. And that's, I think that was really the amazing thing about him because he'd done all this body of work before he came to do the commitments. You know, he had Mississippi Burning, Midnight Express, Bugsy Malone, Fame. You know, he had the musical stuff and also the really dark kind of uh, birdie, you know, all of this stuff. You know, he had such a range. His talent was so dynamic that... He worked with us in such a way that he was quite quietly unassuming, but I think also quietly treacherous. <laughs> you know, he if he if we got a bit too rowdy or whatever, I mean, yeah, he knew how to get us, whip us back, not literally, but whip us into shape. And I think that was the great thing about the film is that everybody kind of let it bubble along unassumingly to give us that kind of very natural performance that we all gave. It was hard work. And it was hard work with him. It ain't no mean feat singing soul music. And that's what the two girls, Andrew and myself, did. And that was a good... I don't. I can't remember quite how many weeks we were recording, but we recorded the album before we went to do the movie. And then we sang live to a backing track on the movie. So what you hear in the film is... It's not added in, that's live. So we had an amazing sound engineer uh, at the back of the, the gigs, each gig. So it really felt real to us, which I think you get in the film. Alan commanded respect, but no, not commanded. I would say he kind of corralled us in such a way that it was gentle persuasion of wanting to do our best for him. I lived in London for about five or six years. Then there was a, a couple of years of sort of straddling the two countries because I was trying to make my way back to Ireland because I was writing a feature film and the voices of it and the whole story was set in Dublin and it was very research heavy so I just wanted to get back towards Ireland but yes I did live and work in London and all over the world really with the theatre tours that I did for about six years yeah Blasted was Sarah Kane's first uh, the play that established her bizarrely I knew her when she was 17 years old Uh, she went under the name flame and she was living as as a kind of dissociate hippie around the London art scene then she went off and kind of learned playwriting with David Edgar although actually what happened was she listened to everything David Edgar had to say and did the opposite which is where Blasted came from and she was the wisest and sweetest and most generous woman you could spend time with Um, she laughed a lot she loved Princess Diana she loved David Beckham none of this sort of quite sort of comes through and out of her plays so she wrote about incredibly disturbing things and she wrote plays that broke all the rules and pissed up the walls but in fact what happened was that you then met her and she was wonderful she was absolutely wonderful and There was no question that she was intent on ending her life a lot of the time that I knew her, but it wasn't a weight in our friendship. Um, She was a privilege to be around. John Borman was amazing. I kind of fell in with John Borman in a good way. I'd done the audition for Two Nudes Bathing, which was this film that we did it was like a kind of shortcuts. There was this kind of big movie made with very famous directors. I think Oliver Stone was one of them. Really well-known, very 
bordering on art house directors to pick a painting in the Louvre and decide, like some of them had stories behind them and there was descriptions about what they were, who was in them. But John being John, who's a wonderful storyteller, chose a painting called Gabrielle and Her Sister. And that was anonymous. So he went and set about writing this whole story about how the painting came to be. So sadly, I wasn't Gabriella or her sister. I was uh, Simone, the lowly handservant, handmaiden. But I do get the guy in the end, which was Charlie Borman. So I can't complain. So I'd, I'd done that film with John and it was very much an in-house production. As I said, his son Charlie was on it. One of his best friends, John Hurt, was on it. His wife and himself produced it. It's beautifully shot. I suppose in London, I did a lot of theatre work in the National Theatre, but also in the Donmar Warehouse with Phyllis Lloyd, who ended up being quite a formative person in my life. Because during that period, there was about five or six years in a row where we would do uh, an all-female Shakespeare play. Then it would get transferred to New York. So, like, for a while, it was amazing. It was like there was this cycle of plays. It was like, OK, you do this play uh, in London, then you do it the next year in, in New York. So I had this phase of, like, experiencing London and New York all the time. Philida encouraging us to just be really confident about creativity and, and storytelling. And that, in the end, led to me choosing to just start writing off my own bat and, and I really have her to thank for that. Mark Gravenhill had just come off the back of his um, infamous first play and was working on his difficult second play with uh, Out of Joint with Max Stafford Clark when I was working with him but I'd known him for a while before and he'd always been interested in teaching and interested in uh, the world of new writing and developing work and all of that and he was an incredibly clever thinker if he had enough clones of himself he would have been a great producer he had wonderful ideas he was just too busy to see them through and some of his ideas because he was my boss at Payne's Plough when I started he was the kind of literary associate and I was literary manager and some of his ideas we did see through and we made a series called World Lunch, which was kind of lunchtime readings for people who lived in the city. And a lot of the writers of those readings, Simon Bowen went on to have a play at the National. Uh, Richard Davidson became a really central writer on EastEnders. It was spotting talent very early. And then we'd lock them in the building for 24 hours and give them biscuits. And at the end, they'd give us a play and we'd put it on. And that was the way we worked. And it was very clever to give people the honour of being selected by Sarah and Mark, but also then to really sort of get work out of them very quickly and uh, strongly. We did a series of plays that were inspired by underground stations on the Jubilee line. And all of this was Mark's kind of provocations that made it happen because what he really wanted to do was just push work out of people. He knew that the only way you improve is by finishing things. And uh, he was quite right. I think he's running the King's Head Theatre in London now and uh, inspiring musical writers. John then, I don't know, somehow I must have got under his skin a bit in that annoying way because then when he went to cast the general, he asked to see me. I came in and it wasn't even an audition. It was just a chat, allegedly. So we just chatted and then I was in L.A. for Tiger's Tale and I 
read the script and they said, oh, they want you to do this part, Tina, or I'm going to say whatever, but I don't mean it lightly. And I said, yeah, but like, I think the wife's part is much better than Tina. Well, who's playing the wife? I'd like to a stab at the wife. And they went, oh, no, that's already cast. That's Kim Cattrall. I went, OK, so. Yeah, we did big, big plays. Like Julius Caesar was incredible because I got to play two roles. I got to play Portia and then play Octavius. Um, so I had to change in the middle of it all. But I was playing somebody pregnant as well. It was just, it was mad. Um, and then Henry IV, I played Prince Hal. I think I might have been the first ever woman to play that role on London stage. And not only was I that, I was also playing him in a Dublin accent. <laughs> So it was really, really, in my head, I was like, oh, I'm making history, you know. <laughs> How big-headed does that sound? <laughs> I really admire people who cast well. There's a little mechanism on Spotlight when you're looking for actors. And you can just see who other people have cast, other directors have cast of the profile that you're looking for. And if I'm lost, I sometimes look up Roger Michel. I think he was so good at casting. I don't think he ever cast a bum actor. He worked with people. He moved characters towards actors rather than the other way around. Rather than looking for the perfectly versatile actor, he wanted the actor on, on screen. And I admire him enormously. He, uh, well, he's best known for things like Notting Hill. But actually, he did the initial production of My Night with Reg, which was effectively a cast of uh, six or seven men of the same age and virtually the same class. And the distinction that he brought onto the stage by the way that he cast that was absolutely fantastic. Really, I admire casting. And I admire writers enormously. Um, Sally Wainwright, obviously. And my friend Sarah Phelps, who has the extraordinary ability to wrestle stories. And uh, the writers who I work with most in uh, Britain are Katie Hims and Sebastian Bonchkiewicz. And both of them are uh, kind of in my blood as writers and we make our best work together. I like doing everything because I bore myself. As a creative, I like doing things that scare me, that frighten me slightly, and that I, I have to question myself on is, mm, do you think you can do that? And then I kind of go, sure you can. <laughs> but no, I, I love, you know, chopping and changing. And I love a mic, you know, obviously, because I'm a singer. I love being in radio and I love the intimacy as well of that little booth, you know, and doing voiceover work. And now it looks like narration. But I also love cartoons as well. I did the voice for Piggly Winks and CBBS uh, for 52 episodes. And that's the one with Mel Brooks in it. There you go. There's a name dropping as well. <laughs> uh, when I was writing herself, basically, I was writing away on my own with no support. I was just trying to figure out how to write screenplays. But I think one of the cast members that I've been just chatting to and having a coffee said it to Philida that I was writing. And the girl apparently said to her she's writing this great film and it's got a great star and role in it and she's she's trying to to sell it like because I was sending it to Rebecca Grimes great actresses that I know that had much more screen experience but also would probably help get the the whole film made you know like Neve Algar Sean of course like I remember I was like sending it to them going would you ever consider doing this but then Phyllida first of all just wanted to help me with the script and give me some advice on it 
and about companies to go to. But second of all, I was like, why would you play it yourself? I was like, oh, sure, it won't get funded. And then eventually, as time went on, I never asked her to direct it. She she actually said at one point, you know, I wouldn't be able to direct it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, no, it's grand. Like, I was real. No, that's fine. I'm not. Don't worry about it. It'll just be like a little Irish indie. And then one day she just texted me and she said, I'm directing your film. And I I didn't know what to think. <laughs> I remember I was like, she's standing in a, a cinema with Neve Algar at the time. And Neve was like, we have to get cocktails. <laughs> I'm making six plays by young writers for the National Theatre, making them into audio dramas. Audible sponsor uh, New Views, which is a festival of school age writing. And this year it's their 10th anniversary. So in July they're having their 10th anniversary festival and they want to bring out a podcast series of particularly fantastic plays from the competitions. And so I made four of them last year and I'm making six this year. And they're marvellous. They're all actually impassioned pieces. I'd say listen out for Isabel Haig. She's going to be a great writer in pretty soon. Um, Rachel Lane is a, a really strong writer, a, an observer of the middle classes. But largely the things they're writing about, they're writing about transgender, they're writing about refugees, they're writing about teenage alcoholism. These are stories which emerge from the slush of my parents' stupid plays as fascinating stories that you wouldn't find anywhere else and would, couldn't be told in any other language. So it's worth looking. Molly Bloom with Stephen Ray in the film Bloom. How I got in the room for that was I'd been doing The Plough and the Stars and O'Casey with Stephen Ray directing and one night he just approached me and said I, I think you'd make an incredible Molly. Why don't you you know, my friend Sean will contact you, come in. So I went to Sean's office and it was kind of, you know, what they say about the casting couch. I, I think I was actually, it was a moment on the casting couch, but it was, <laughs> it was literally a couch because obviously Molly's supposed to be in bed. So he filmed me while I lay on, this sounds really wrong. He filmed me as I lay on this couch and did the thinking kind of part <laughs> of Molly. And apparently he just said, she's it. You're definitely it. Kin has been amazing. Uh, it's like a baptism of fire because I'd never actually done a TV job and then all of a sudden I was playing one of the most incredibly written women in a TV series in years. Like the script by Peter McKenna was so strong. I just remember sitting there and being gripped to the chair, reading it and then kind of coming out of it like it was a spell. It's very confident writing, it's very character driven, but it's just so real, so authentic. You can hear every voice in that script as their own thing. I just loved it. Stephen was wonderful. Hugh O'Connor was marvellous in it. You know, we had a beautiful cast. Again, the intimacy of making something that, you know, a piece of art. And that's why I think I wanted to do it. And worked with very talented people. You know, sometimes it's not about the money, it's about working with really good people that you know you're going to meet along the way. Like the the wardrobe designer, Tara Van Ziel. You know, she worked with me on a couple of occasions since. We always say that we'll see each other at the Oscars. Golden Globes, who knows? <laughs> you got to aim big. You know, and I think as well as that, Ireland and Dublin is such a small place that if you're lucky and you get to work with 
kind, talented creatives. It's brilliant. I loved Molly and also it took me very, very far away from what people perceived me as the character of Imelda Quirk. I never worry about what sex the writer is when they're writing women or men. I just think some writers just have an instinct to write characters very well. I, it's a bit like when I write children. I don't go, oh, I'm writing a child, so I have to alter everything. I literally almost write them like adults, but they're just much more open and a clean palate in their brain, just asking about the world. I'm very honest. They have less um, guardedness about things. So I sometimes feel when you're just writing the opposite sex, it's almost like, I don't know, just don't don't overthink it too much. Just step into somebody's shoes and empathise with who they are. And then eventually you'll get there. But I, I think Peter's just good at writing authentic characters. I just think he's brilliant at it. Yeah, I live in London. I've been living there for about 22 years. I never intended to. I went for a year. Uh, I like my anonymity. I like the fact that I can, you know, do things. And I'm not saying I can't do it here, but I think I'm I'm coming to a kind of a resting point, though. It's like one of those Wheel of Fortunes. I'm coming to that little tick, 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 and coming back down again to coming back to Ireland. I want to come home. Yeah, Aidan Gillen's very funny. <laughs> he's as dry as I think he's great crack. Kieran Hines, I worked with in theatre and I loved reconnecting to him in such a different way on the job. Uh, of kin I feel very blessed to be around people like Charlie Cox and Emmett Scanlon I feel like they've taught me how to do TV acting they literally showed me the ropes literally in the first few weeks you know you just look at somebody like Jennifer Coolidge who's just won the Golden Globe and you look at her in the White Lotus and she would never have been considered to be the the beauty of Hollywood she's tall she's gangly she she's a wonderful turn of phrase and Someone's given her, like Mike White, who just gave her that wonderful platform. I actually sometimes just think of the great women from years ago, like Maureen O'Hara and stuff. Because when you read about them and they tell some of their story, like in her book, my God, if we thought we had some barriers to break through now, back then it was like she didn't only have to prove herself as an actress and as a woman, but as an Irish woman. And she had to get to know the ropes very quickly in the old school movie days where you didn't have that many takes. You had to nail things. You had to be like, I don't know, riding horses, falling off things, (laughs) doing stuff with John Wayne. Like, she just had this gun-ho attitude that was so instinctive. And even if she didn't believe in herself, she just chose to, you know, fake it till she made it. But I just think, The women from back then, I just really, really admire. And there you heard the voices of director Jessica Drumgool and actors Claire Dunn and Angeline Ball talking about working on Arthur Sheridan's play Mixed Future, which was runner-up at the 2022 PJ O'Connor Awards. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.